Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Faroon Sivaram, visiting senior fellow at Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy. Varun is an expert on all things energy, but today we'll talk to him about the two years he recently spent working on solar energy in India. We'll talk about the evolution of India's power grid, including its rapid expansion of energy access and its historical dependence on coal. Then we'll talk about the rise of solar, wind, and storage, along with the challenges that lie ahead. Stay with us. Okay, Varun Sivaram from the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Daniel, thank you for having me. So Varun, we're going to talk about energy in India over the next 30 minutes or so, and particularly the electricity sector. And I know you just got back from spending quite a bit of time in India. So can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to head over there, how long you were there, and what you were up to? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I just made it back from New Delhi, India, where I spent the last couple of years. I'm now back in Washington, D.C., but it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience to spend time in India, and I wish I could have spent longer. Uh, now that the now that we have a coronavirus, uh, I decided to come back to be with my uh, wife and family here in the U.S. Um, I've been fascinated by India for the last five years or so, at least. I mean, uh, my, my heritage is uh, originally from India. But especially over the last five years, um, I've been watching this clean energy transition unfold. In 2015, when I first moved to Washington, D.C. and went to the Council on Foreign Relations, um, my first blog post ever was why I thought India's new solar energy targets were just absolutely ridiculous. Prime Minister Modi had just uh, been elected and he uh, quintupled the previous administration's target for solar power to 100 gigawatts by 2022. At the time, I think that was like half of all the solar in the world. And I said, there's no way uh, that he's going to hit that target. And within about 12 months, I had to eat my words. Uh, my next blog post at CFR uh, was, I was wrong and something <laughs> remarkable is happening in India. Um, I started to do a lot of research. I, uh, when I was at the Paris uh, Climate Change Conference, I hung out with the Indian negotiators, and there was this shift afoot. There was this new generation of forward-thinking uh, Indian bureaucrats, diplomats, uh, officials, thinking about how India could actually invest in renewable energy and reduce its emissions, which is a real market shift from India's stance historically. And then 2016, 2017, as I was writing my book, uh, Taming the Sun, um, I focused heavily on India because the price declines there were more pronounced than anywhere else in the world. So when Tim the Sun came out, I was thrilled to get the opportunity to actually move uh, lock, stock and barrel to India halfway around the world and uh, work for India's largest renewable energy company, Renew Power. Uh, Renew was founded by Sumant Sinha, and he is just this total visionary entrepreneur who you know, has never taken no for an answer and wants to build more gigawatts of renewable energy than anyone ever thought was possible. So he wanted a chief technology officer and I wanted the chance to go work on technology in what I thought was probably the most exciting, challenging and important energy transition in the world. Just a, a quick note on that. I think India's emissions over the next 30 years could come close to the level of China's. I think India could be the number one emitter in the world sometime this century. And unless we accelerate that clean energy transition, 
India is a ticking climate bomb. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a wonderful experience to move over there and uh, would love to talk about some of the, the experiences I had. Yeah, well, let's let's get started with that. Um, you know, we're going to talk about sort of the contemporary issues and, and then some forward looking issues. But before we do that, I think it might be useful to lay, lay a little bit of groundwork and a little bit of history to help us understand how we got to wherever it is we are right now. Um, and so I know this is an enormous question and we could spend hours talking about it, but uh, I'm hoping you can give me kind of a quick um, maybe primer on a little history of India's electricity grid, thinking about how it's expanded in recent years and kind of what the major energy sources are, uh, both historically and then up to today. And this is a big topic. Let me try and be brief. I may <laughs> fail. <laughs> um, so l let's focus on the last decade. Uh, it's been a really interesting decade for India's electricity sector. Uh, in the last decade, in 2014, India became a single synchronous grid. It brought together all five of its regions onto one synchronous grid. And it became one of the world's largest grids in doing so. Um, over this last decade, power demand in India has just exploded as India's economy has grown. Um, it's increased by about 50 percent. So by 2020, India is the world's third largest power consumer behind the U.S. and China, consumes about 1,500 terawatt hours of electricity every year. In tandem, to meet growing demand, generation, electricity generation, actually expanded even faster. Um, so it, it went up by more than double from less than 200 gigawatts a decade ago to 400 gigawatts of installed capacity uh, today. And even more impressively, wind and solar power quadrupled to 82 gigawatts by 2019. So by, you know, t today we're sitting at close to 40% clean energy generation capacity. And of course, capacity is different from actual generation. And so India's generation mix today has about a quarter clean energy, hydro, nuclear, wind and solar. And the remaining three quarters, about 72% comes from coal. So India is still a very coal dominated uh, power sector. But 2019, was the first year when coal generation actually fell. And it, thanks to the pandemic, it's actually falling again uh, in 2020. So right. there's a chance, there's a chance that coal power generation has peaked. Um, and then just very quickly on the, on the regulatory and policy side, uh, the last two decades have been interesting for India. In 2003, India passed this landmark Electricity Act. It opened generation to competition. And so today, about half the generation is privately owned. The other half is owned by central and state governments. Uh, there's a separate uh, transmission system operated by a grid operator and owned by uh, the power grid corporation. And then at the distribution and retail levels, distribution companies have monopolies. They're called DISCOMs. And these DISCOMs are, uh, are run or owned by the state governments. These DISCOMs, by the way, are the biggest weak link in India's electricity sector. And we should talk a lot more about them. Um, you know, more than 90% of the discounts are unprofitable for various reasons. And that's one of the biggest barriers to renewable energy growing. Um, and another, you know, barrier or, or, or way that the power sector needs to get reformed is that over 90% of the power today is still priced through regulated long-term contracts. And only 4% is traded through the power exchange. This is in stark contrast to what we're familiar with here in the U.S., uh, wholesale power markets. Um, so India is now trying a regulatory push with some limited success to uh, reform electricity markets, to, to create them really, a day ahead market, a real time market, an ancillary services market. Um, but, but that's kind of where India's electricity sector is today. Still coal dominated, kind of green shoots of hope, 
Uh, but I think the next decade is going to be critical. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's so, again, as you say, there's so many fascinating issues to dig into there, and I wish I could follow up on many of them, but we're going to plow ahead so that we can uh, talk about um, so, some specific topics. But one quick policy background question um, before we do that, which is, you know, one of the priorities for Prime Minister Modi, who you mentioned a few moments ago since he took office, has been uh, expanding access to electricity across India, uh, where you know, historically, there have been hundreds of millions of people who lacked sort of regular access to energy services. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that growth has been proceeding and whether it's been enabled largely by kind of the big nationalized grid that you mentioned or whether it's been met more with smaller systems like microgrids or rooftop solar? Yeah. Um, well, look, Prime Minister Modi takes credit for a lot of things. <laughs> By the way, I, I love that I'm allowed to speak freely now that I'm not in the private sector anymore. If you are in an Indian private company, the only things you say about Modi are, he is awesome, he is awesome, he's awesome. Anyway, uh -huh. um, the, uh, he takes credit for a lot of things. This is one that he actually deserves to take credit for. Um, energy access in India has expanded dramatically. Um, at the beginning of the decade, 2010, um, India, I think, had 400 million people without access to power. That's fallen by three quarters. It's now down to just about 100 million people. Um, and to your question, um, it, it has largely been thanks to grid expansion, expansion at the distribution level. Now, some of this expansion is in name only. So that is to say a distribution line will be extended to a particular village. And that line may or may not get used, but that village nominally has power. Right. But by and large, the access to electricity has been real. The, the expansion of the access has been real. Hundreds of millions of people, uh, thanks to Prime Minister Modi's uh, reforms, hundreds of millions of people now have access to electricity. Um, I think going forward, microgrids, as you bring up, may play a larger role, especially as the economics of distributed generation improve. I don't think that something like a solar home system, a highly decentralized solar system, is going to make much difference now or in the future. But I do think that kind of an intermediate scale of distribution where you have a, you know, hundreds of kilowatts or tens of kilowatts array of solar powering a mini grid or a microgrid, I think that could make a meaningful difference to energy access going forward where the distribution grid just struggles to reach or is very unreliable. And one exciting project is the Tata Rockefeller Foundation project to put a thousand, uh, 10,000 microgrids across India. So going forward, I think both grid expansion and microgrids will play an important role. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, definitely something to watch. So one of the exciting things that I've learned recently from reading your work, particularly an article that you wrote recently uh, for the Aspen Institute that we'll have a link to and I'll encourage people to go check out, um, is that new power generation and capacity, as you mentioned, uh, that's coming online recently in India. There's just a whole lot of solar coming online and particularly solar with battery storage. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of these new solar with storage projects and how they're competing with the existing fossil uh, generation mix, in particular coal? Yeah, if it's okay with you, let me back up actually and give some context sure. about where we are headed in India and why this is such a critical decade. Um, between 2020 and 2030, I think there is this chance for the power sector to just utterly transform. As we mentioned, we've got about 75% coal generation today. By 2030, that could go down to 
By 2030, we could see 50% clean electricity, largely on the backs of an expansion in wind and solar power, an unprecedented global expansion. The Modi administration has set a target of 450 gigawatts of renewable energy, mostly wind and solar, by 2030. Again, if I was back at CFR, I heard that number, I would, you know, I'd, I'd immediately write that blog post saying, there's no way you're going to meet this. But, but India actually, I think, very well could meet it, given the experience of the last few years, where they've dramatically uh, you know, quadrupled wind and solar capacity. And the annual rate of growth, about 14% between now and 2030 to hit that 450 gigawatt target, is lower than the annual rate of growth that India's had over the last five years. Now, the last year hasn't been great for renewable energy deployment, and the pandemic certainly isn't helping the construction of new projects. But this is really the critical decade for India to invest in renewables and in uh, uh, grid infrastructure to enable the integration of renewables. Now, to your question, uh, solar and storage are increasingly coming online, and that's extremely important because flexibility will be critical to incorporating all of these intermittent renewables onto the grid. Um, recently, in uh, this year itself, in January and in May 2020, the government had two very important uh, auctions that they ran for renewable energy with storage or with certain characteristics. The first auction was with re for renewable energy with storage that could meet peak power demands for six out of nine uh, defined peak hours in the morning and evening. Our firm, Renew Power, actually won that auction. We were one of the co-winners. And the, the price that, that we successfully bid at is lower than the price of a new coal power plant, you know, which is about six cents a kilowatt hour. Um, so, so already you can see the price of power from solar, wind, and storage beating that of the, you know, a, a new coal power plant. And then later on in May, an even more sort of audacious auction was for the government to source 80% capacity factor renewable energy. Our firm Renew Power again won that auction, 400 megawatts at 80% annual capacity factor. And it's, it's remarkable uh, that at this point, both of those auctions were won at prices lower than the price of coal power. So, you know, very exciting to see going forward that renewable energy coupled with various uh, flexibility mechanisms, uh, storage and, and, and other mechanisms, can enable you to generate energy that looks and feels a little bit like it's dispatchable, although it's not quite dispatchable, as, a, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Right. And and for, the, for our listeners who aren't deep on electricity, I, I know many of you are, but, but for those of you who who aren't familiar with some of these terms that we're using here, you know, one of the critical issues with having a reliable grid is, of course, having dispatchable power or electricity that you can basically call up on demand. Um, and so that's a challenge or has been a challenge for solar uh, because it only generates when the sun is shining. So so adding batteries really can, can enable it to play that more dispatchable role. And the term that Varun used, uh, capacity factor, refers to um, correct me if I if I muddle this, Varun, but um, it refers to the uh, basically output uh, that the power plant generates relative to its theoretical potential output. So if you build a solar plant that has 100 megawatt capacity uh, and it's generating uh, that amount of electricity 80% of the time, then it has an 80% capacity factor. I probably messed that up a little bit, but but was I close? 
Yeah, you were. And, and actually, the, the way you put it highlights why the capacity factor definition in this auction is actually a little tricky. It's different from what you said, which is the conventional way we understand capacity factor. The conventional way we understand it is if a plant has 100% capacity factor, it's putting out the exact same output 8,760 hours of the year, right? But uh, if in this case of the auction that Renew Power won, 80% capacity factor just means that the 400 megawatts that we are contracted to deliver to uh, a, a distribution company, we have to deliver 320 megawatts on average, or 80% of 400 megawatts. But that doesn't mean we can't build a much bigger plant. We could build, you know, I'm going to make up numbers here. We could build a 600 megawatt plant, an 800 megawatt plant. We can build four plants of, you know, 200 megawatts each. We can totally overbuild the plant so that we're, we're confident that we can send uh, 320 megawatts uh, consistently to the contracted off-taker. So that's one strategy here, overbuild renewables, and that enables you to count on a firm level of output up to a certain threshold well below the generation capacity of that plant. Um, now, to, to be sure, that renewable plant or agglomeration of plants, you can build the plants in different states and just connect them to the interstate transmission grid, that series of plants is not really equivalent to a single uh, fossil-fueled coal power plant. Uh, that thermal plant can actually ramp up and down on command. In the case of overbuilding renewables, you still have the problem of what to do with the excess renewable energy. You could throw it away, but that's not very economical. And so, as I mentioned earlier on, India is starting to reform its uh, power exchange, trying to build wholesale energy markets. And so as those markets mature, it's going to become, hopefully, profitable uh, to sell the excess electricity onto the market. And so that's a creative way that the Indian government has found to enable uh, a contracted off-taker, a distribution company, to get firm power from a renewable energy company. And for the renewable energy company then to go and sell the rest of its power on an exchange and kind of efficiently sell it to whoever's willing to buy it. So I think this is, honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a big win for the sector, but it, it reveals that there's more work to be done because we still don't have a one-to-one -one replacement for fossil fuels. Uh, with renewable energy and possibly storage. And, and that's okay. Um, renewable energy and storage have different characteristics. Um, but going forward, the costs of renewables and storage will have to continue to fall for those two resources to provide a lot of the flexibility that the grid will need. And we shouldn't depend only on storage. We should be depending on transmission. We should be depending on flexible demand. We should be depending even on the flexibility of coal power plants ramping them up and down to compensate for intermittent wind and solar. And I really think market reform is going to enable us to price those things effectively. That's super interesting. And it plays right into the next question that I wanted to ask you, uh, which is related to uh, whether uh, renewables are sort of ready to uh, to really start taking market share from the existing uh, coal-based mix in in India. So sometimes you see headlines in uh, in trade press or or in newspaper articles that talk about the very low cost of solar power, even solar with storage that you're mentioning, Varun, and uh, sort of the the take-home message that some people take from those low prices is that hooray, we've made it, renewables won, uh, you know, it's all smooth sailing from here. Um, but it's more complex than that. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, some of those complexities when it comes to the rise of renewables? Yeah, look, e even though we've passed this landmark moment that renewable energy is now cheaper on some metrics than coal energy, um, it's still the case 
that coal will play an important role in India's energy landscape going forward. We haven't even talked about the industrial sector because today's discussion is about the power sector, but coal use is forecast to rise sharply to fuel industrial processes. And in the power sector, even if India meets this wildly ambitious target of 450 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030, it's possible that coal generation will actually stay flat or increase a little bit. India's incremental demand growth for energy is so sharp that just building renewables as fast as humanly possible may just meet that incremental demand. Now, the last couple of years, 2019 and 2020, are demonstrating to us that India's economy actually may not grow as quickly as previously anticipated. Now, maybe this is a blip and India will return to you know, uh, quick economic growth. And if so, demand growth will follow quickly. But if not, if demand doesn't grow as fast as we previously anticipated, and if we are more effective at efficiency measures, whether in air conditioning, buildings, and other efficiency measures, well, then there's a chance that between now and 2030, renewables could start to eat into coal's share. But let me be clear, even in the absolute best case scenario, I still expect coal to produce a majority or at least a plurality share of any source of India's power uh, by 2030. Nevertheless, this is the critical decade. This is the decade where India's energy transition is, you know, is made or broken. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, so uh, maybe building on um, the, the previous question about, you know, some of the potential barriers to, again, deploying these technologies, and I, I don't want to poo-poo the amazing uh, progress that's been made, uh, but one of the really fascinating things that I learned from reading your book, Taming the Sun, is that uh, there's a risk that as more solar power comes on the grid, it could become less profitable for solar generators to actually produce that energy and thus disincentivize those solar generators from coming onto the grid. Can you give us um, kind of a basic understanding of how that dynamic works and whether uh, you're concerned about it playing a role in India? I am concerned about it playing a role in India. The wrinkle is that I'm concerned it'll play a role not today, but five or 10 years down the line. And that lag in the risk is what might uh, suppress immediate action to solve it. So quickly, to, to give an overview of the effect, the more solar you put on a grid, the less valuable that solar becomes, because that solar basically eats its own lunch. It's generating all at the same time of the day, and you have a surplus of electricity. And therefore, the, more, the, the marginal solar panel you put on the grid becomes less valuable, because you already have so much generating at exactly that time. By the way, it, it also turns out in India that uh, wind can be highly correlated as well. But wind is more seasonally correlated than correlated on a daily level. So in the summer months, for example, in the monsoon months, wind tends to generate at a very high capacity factor. And then on the off-season months, wind is a very low 25% or so capacity factor. Um, why am I worried about this? Well, I'm not worried right now. Right now, India has more than enough grid capacity, especially in its interstate uh, transmission system, to integrate a whole lot more solar and wind power, even though that solar and wind is intermittent. And that's why the government is smart to have these auctions where they allow a tremendous overbuild of solar and wind. You're basically treating the grid as a big battery. So if you win this tender for round-the-clock power, and instead of 400 megawatts, you build 1,000 megawatts or more, well, you can dump the extra power into the grid and there's no problem, and you're not going to see a really major value deflation problem right now. Solar is, as I mentioned, just 3% of generation in India. But in the future, as you get to higher levels, as we try and hit that 450 gigawatt target, solar and wind 
are going to account for a much larger percentage of power. And at that point, they are going to start eating their own lunch. Um, now, the market structure may not reflect it immediately, but it will play havoc uh, because you're going to have a glut of power, sometimes at the wrong times. One factor, by the way, that will mitigate this effect is that air conditioning demand is growing so strongly in India. And because of air conditioning demand, the peak in power will actually be right at the time when the peak of solar generation happens in the middle of the day. Nevertheless, we still will see a large surge of demand in the evening, just as we do in the United States when people go home from work. And in those evening shoulder hours, it's going to be very important to have some flexibility mechanism to make up for solar generation that's dropping off a cliff. That's why you're already seeing these distribution companies in India, who are the utilities that buy the power from the generators and sell it on to the customers. These distribution companies are already demanding uh, contracts where they don't just get plain vanilla solar and wind power, they also get peak power guarantees. That was the auction I mentioned to you in January that Renew Power won, where the distribution company wants that guaranteed that from you know, 6 to 9 a.m. in the morning or in the evening, they can get a guarantee that storage or, or, or some other flexibility mechanism is going to deliver to them guaranteed power. Um, this is only going to get worse going forward. And I fear that if we don't invest in flexibility right now in India or around the world, this eating its own lunch phenomenon or value deflation is going to create a ceiling for how much solar and wind we can put on a grid. And that's really worrying because if we get down the line, 2025, 2027, and we hit this wall, well, well, then it's, it's too late to start investing. You're going to lose five years before you can get the clean energy transition back on track. That's why we invest right now in transmission infrastructure, in storage, in making coal plants flexible through market mechanisms. And I worry that, you know, especially in transmission, I'm seeing investment fall off a cliff. And that's, that's really worrying to me. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And, um, my, my one pedantic comment for the day is that I'm a person who loves like a good vanilla ice cream. And so whenever people say plain vanilla, I recoil a little bit because plain, because I don't like plain ice cream and I really do like vanilla ice cream. But I absolutely agree with everything else you said with uh, Verdun and, uh, and it's really fascinating. Um, as, we, as we wrap up our conversation, we've talked about uh, you know some of the really big opportunities. We've talked about a couple challenges already. When you step back and think broadly about the power sector, you know where it is today and where you're hoping it's going to go in the next few decades, uh, what are some of the big challenges uh, that we haven't talked about uh, that you think the sector is facing and what are some policy or market approaches that might uh, help India overcome those challenges? Well, let me first tell you, I'm going to send a note to the Indian Ministry of New and Renewable Energy and ask them to start renaming their tenders cookie dough or yeah. chocolate chip. <laughs> um, so, sorry, I, I, I won't say plain vanilla anymore. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the biggest challenges I see going forward probably are probably threefold. Um, the first challenge that I see is flexibility. We've talked a little bit about this. I really want to see India invest more in transmission, both interstate and intrastate. And I want to see uh, coal power plants start to operate more flexibly because they can actually compensate for intermittent renewable energy at a lower cost than storage or many other flexibility mechanisms. Now, doing all this is going to require money. Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimates that it's going to cost something like $600 billion over the next decade to invest in the renewables and in the uh, grid infrastructure, the flexibility infrastructure to reach that 450 gigawatt target. So that brings me to the second 
difficulty, which is finance. Uh, it's critical that India raise a lot of finance, and most of it's not going to come domestically. International finance is very important. Our company, Renew Power, was funded uh, on the equity side largely by international investors like Goldman Sachs. Um, so in order to continue to attract international finance at even higher rates, you know, five times what the rate is right now of capital flowing into the country, India is going to have to reform that distribution sector. Those distribution companies, DISCOMs, often don't pay on time. You know, one of the most salient memories from my time in India was the second half of 2019, when a whole state, the state of Andhra Pradesh, decided to renege on its contracts. And the distribution companies weren't going to pay for the power that they were contracted to purchase from a whole range of, dis of uh, uh, renewable energy producers, ours included among them. That sort of risk where the distribution companies, which are often insolvent, just refuse to pay, that sort of risk scares off international investors. So India's going to have to fix that. Uh, and, and in return, I think international investors have a lot of appetite to bring both debt and equity capital into India. And then finally, the third challenge that I think will face India is, as India has a clean energy transition, it needs to think first and foremost about an economic transition. The coal power sector and the coal sector are important employers and whole states depend on coal for their economies. I visited the state of Chhattisgarh, which is a large coal producing state. I saw the largest coal mine in Asia. And I, I, I saw how these people were literally getting killed by the emissions from the coal plants and the mines that they lived next to. And yet sentiment about uh, the coal plants and mines was generally positive. This was the lifeblood of the economy. India is going to have to think about how a clean energy economy will similarly provide employment and economic opportunity. Now, in the wind sector, the wind sector is actually producing domestic employment because manufacturing happens inside India. In fact, India manufactures blades for wind turbines, for example, and other components at a rate that's about four times the domestic demand for wind. And so it's actually a net exporter on some components. That's not true for solar. India is a net importer. Now, India's uh, strategy for trying to support its domestic industry has been pretty damaging tariffs. And those tariffs probably aren't the best way to support uh, domestic producers. But India will have to find other ways, whether it's in battery manufacturing or the manufacturing of new energy components like electrolyzers for hydrogen or carbon capture equipment. India will have to find a way for the clean energy transition to pay economic dividends. So those are kind of the three biggest challenges I see going forward. Yeah. Great. And so a lot of those factors you talked about, especially on the, the financing side, was really from the, the private financing side. Are there um, sort of uh, government to government partnerships or policy interactions at the international level that you think also might be helpful? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked, Daniel. Um, I think that the United States and India have great scope for cooperation on finance. U.S. investors are eager to invest in India. And India, if it just make certain reforms or provide certain guarantees uh, will make itself a very attractive investment destination. I think this finance component could underpin a very important deal between the United States and India. It could be a deal as important, in my opinion, as the U.S.-China climate deal in 2014 that led directly to the Paris 2015 climate summit. I'm an advisor to the COP26 summit, which is happening next year in Glasgow. Um, and I think ahead of that summit, a U.S.-India joint climate announcement would be a tremendous accomplishment, and clean energy finance should be right at the center of it. Mm. Yeah, that'll be fascinating to watch. 
Um, well, Varun, as we've said already, there are a million more things we could talk about uh, for hours, and, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do that in the uh, the months ahead. But now uh, let's close it out with um, our final question that we ask all of our listeners, which is what you've been reading or watching or listening to that you think is really interesting and that you think our, uh, our listeners would enjoy. And I'll just briefly start with um, a book that really speaks to some of the challenges for coal communities that you mentioned in India. Uh, it's, a, it's a book of case studies called After Coal, Stories of Survival in Appalachia and Wales uh, by an author named Tom Hansel. Um, and I'm from North Carolina and my mom was Welsh. Uh, so a lot of these stories are really interesting to me just in a personal level. And they're about how different communities manage big economic changes with the decline of coal. Um, so just for reference, in the U.S., Coal employment has now dipped below 50,000. It was 125,000 in the early 80s. This is the lowest level probably since the 1800s. Uh, we're seeing similar declines in other parts of the world. Uh, and so learning the lessons of the past, I think, will be really important for helping uh, coal communities transition towards the future. Um, so that's what I'm reading. How about you, Vernon? Well, uh, depending on how you consume your media, let me give you three different things that I've been looking at. Uh, Great. The first is a book. Uh, Leah Stokes's book, Short-Circuiting Policy, is fantastic. She's a professor at UC Santa Barbara and writes about the political coalitions that it will take to uh, achieve a clean energy transition. Um, I love this podcast, Daniel, uh, but let me also highly recommend the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast yes. that uh, Jason Bordoff and Bill Loveless uh, co-lead. Um, and then finally, if you're into newsletters, um, let me recommend Our Daily Planet. Now, I am normally an energy and climate guy, so I know very little about the rest of the environmental issues, but I think those issues are covered extremely comprehensively by Our Daily Planet um, and by the, the newsletter's authors, um, Monica and Miro. So highly recommend all three of these resources. Yeah, I'll second all three of them as well. Really great, really great resources. Um, well, Varun Sivaram, uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. I've learned a ton, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure to join you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.